Romans chapter 3, if you would please. I remind you as we turn it, we're turning here that this is, in fact, Reformation Sunday. Um, the Reformation um, Day is technically October 31st, in case, in case everybody was not aware of that. October 31st of 1517 is the day when Martin Luther um, went to the Wittenberg door and nailed up the 95 theses, and that's when the Reformation was launched. October 31st of 1517. Um, This is the Sunday in which we're going to celebrate that. Not only this morning are we thanking God for what he's done and making sure he preserves his gospel, but um, tonight we will be, and you're all invited to that, um, specifically with another church in conjunction with them, just celebrating the Reformation and and, uh, what God chose to do there to preserve his gospel, because that's what he did. The gospel wasn't discovered on October 31st, 1517. Um, It wasn't invented that day. It was preserved. God did a work to preserve it from being lost, which he always does, right? The gospel is always under assault because Satan wants to undermine more than anything else the gospel. And uh, God is always at work to preserve it. One of the great moments of work that we see God doing to preserve it is or was October 31st of 1517 when Luther took that act. And so we're celebrating that this week, which is why it's so fitting that we are in Romans chapter 3. And uh, starting in verse 27, we're going to start there this morning. Romans chapter 3. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let me pray. Lord, uh, we recognize that... um, Your word is holy and right and true, and we want to do service to it this morning. I pray that you, Lord, would illumine our minds so that we would understand it. And Lord, that you would soften our hearts so that we would receive it with joy and thanksgiving. And Lord, that we would be obedient as a result. Lord, that we would trust you more deeply and that we would obey uh, more rightly as a result of that. We thank you for this and pray, Lord, as we um, get into it, uh, that not only would we examine it, your word, but that we would allow your word to examine us. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you guys have probably all received a gift at some point, right? Just about everybody I know has received a gift at some point. Um, and when you receive a really good gift, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? You got something you really wanted and you got it for free. You didn't have to pay for it. Um, 
You know, when I, in fact, I, I like free gifts so much that when I was in college, I had a little saying. It was, if it's free, it's for me. Right? And it was kind of like a little motto I lived by. And I remember because Teresa has an aunt who um, was great at getting free stuff through coupon shopping. She cut coupons like nobody I've ever seen in my whole life. And she had a whole storage room in her house just stock full of free stuff that she got through her just incredibly insane coupon shopping. And uh, I remember I was in college and I was living in this nasty, dirty, beat up apartment with another guy off campus. And there were shootings and stuff there. And it was not good, but it was right off campus in the uh, Fresno Pacific, which is right in the lovely part of gangland in Fresno, um, Southeast Fresno. And so we lived there and we were dirt poor Um, we didn't have any way to even hardly buy groceries. I remember. And so we would go to Teresa's aunt's house and she would take us into this storage room and let us pick out whatever we wanted for free. Right. And so we'd get excited. But the problem was, is that when you get, um, a lot of free stuff through coupon shopping, you tend to get a lot of the, what same thing. Right. And it's not always stuff. There's no variety. So I remember that we would always get boxes and boxes of rice and jars of spaghetti sauce. And that's pretty much what we ate. Spaghetti sauce at, on white rice. And that sound nasty, but we couldn't afford anything else. Couldn't afford it. We were just excited that it was free. So sp- white rice and spaghetti sauce and occasionally some applesauce and they'd mix up a little bit and it's a new flavor and we would get excited about it. <laughs> you know, But our culture is always telling us we don't really get things for free. And the big thing that I hear, and and this for me was, you know, experiential proof of this, is that the best things in life are never free. Let's hear that, right? The best things in life are never free. Um, That's what we hear all the time. Yet what's amazing to me is that Jesus seems to flip that whole paradigm on its head. In fact, the whole Bible does. That the best thing in life, in fact, is free. The absolute most glorious thing you could ever receive, the greatest gift that could ever be given is free because it's a gift. It's not something we pay for. It's not something we earn. It's not something we get. We credit in some way by something we do. It's just free. It's eternal life. It's the grace of God. It's Jesus himself is free to us. I was reading Isaiah um, 55, 1, and I was um, 1 through 3, actually, this week and praying through it and thrown by um, just what's said here. And and Jesus really picks up on it, but I want to read this to you. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Hear that? Come buy and eat. He who has no what? Money. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live 
And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, this promise is picked up in Christ. Jesus says, come all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you just ask for the water, I'd have given you water that will quench your thirst forever. No price. Free gift. Here you go. Come buy salvation with no money, no works. It's free. It's just a gift. You don't do anything. Jesus offers everyone the free grace, the free gift of grace in himself. It's free. It doesn't come at a cost to us. You know who came at a cost to God. God paid the cost in Christ. In his crucifixion. You don't do anything. You just receive it. That's it. That's what we've been talking about. That's what we talked about last week. You know what it means when the reformers say sola fide? It's great cry of the Reformation. Sola fide. Faith alone. Why? You know what it means when they say that? It isn't some kind of complicated idea. It's just receive. See the truth. Receive it. That's it. You don't do anything. You just receive We've kind of screwed it up, though. We've turned it into something else. We've turned grace. I mean, I think we start to think we merit it. Let me give you an example how we do that. Um, back during the time, of, really, of the 1700s, 1800s, there was a group of theologians who I, I, I hate. I don't want to even call Christian theologians. They were called the Socinians. Okay? They, they followed a guy named um, Socinus. And, and, and here, here was their basic teaching about faith. And I, you guys may have heard this because it's popular in American Christianity today. What faith is, is this God gave us a law in the old Testament, holy, righteous, perfect, and good, but too hard for any of us to ever accomplish perfectly. Right? We all agree with that, right? There is no way we will all fail all of us. And so what God does now is he gives us a new law called faith and it's an easier law. Here was this very difficult law, the Ten Commandments, that none of us could keep. So now God gives us this new law. Just believe in my son. If you can just do that one thing, then you're good to go. And by the way, here's how that looks. Feel really bad about the fact that you weren't supposed to be able to keep the other thing. Feel really bad about that. And then muster up some kind of courage within yourself or strengthen yourself where you can believe really strongly about this and then you'll be good to go because somehow faith has become the new law that you can keep the law before was a law you couldn't keep in other words we turned faith into what a work it's just an easier work just an easier one, it seems to us, right? We've turned it into that. It's not. It's not this. Because here's the gospel. And this so often isn't preached when we talk about faith. It's not. You know what? God gave us a law that was perfect, holy, righteous, and good. And we all fail to keep it. 
None of us can for all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Everyone. So. What happens? God kept it for us. He didn't remove it and give us an easier law called faith in Jesus. He sent Jesus to keep that law for us. Both the precepts or commands of it and the penalty of it. And Jesus kept it for us. And so now you know what he requires of us? You know what the conditions to God's grace are? None. There are no conditions to God's grace. It's a gift. You know what faith is? I see it. And I just believe. I just trust. I have no hope. I couldn't do it. But he could. That's it. It's that simple. But then what do I do? Don't I have to do something? Is it really that easy? What about repentance? Shouldn't I feel really bad first? Isn't repentance a condition? No, repentance is a consequence. You know what happens when you see the gospel of God's free grace in Christ? You know what happens when you see it, when you apprehend it, when you believe it? You know what occurs? You repent as a consequence of your salvation, not as a condition of your salvation. You're changed. You're blown away and you are different. Not in order to get that, but because you have received it already. Man, have we screwed that up? Because somehow we want to think that we contribute something. I, I constantly, I don't know what you guys, constantly live in the prison of thinking I contribute something. Something. I've at least got to contribute feeling really, really bad about failing to contribute anything. I got to contribute something. And it's a prison. You know what Paul's saying in Romans 3, 21 through 26? Jesus paid it all. Every bit of it. For all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God and are justified. What? By his grace as a free gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? Whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of God's wrath by his blood to be received through faith. That's it. It's just the means by which we receive the gift. The three implications of this doctrine, three implications I'm going to talk about that are all in Romans 3, 27 through 31. Three implications of sola fide. That's why I titled the sermon sola fide, humility, missions. What does it say in the law? Okay. Three implications that spring from this doctrine. And you know what? They spring from one question. Really, there's one question that this teaching begs from us, right? We want to know. 
It's one question and three implications that spring from that. What's the question? I mean, what is it that hearing this doctrine naturally causes in you? Well, if you're a believer who's currently embracing it, it generally causes rejoicing. Right? It's part of it. But you know what else it tends to cause in us? Believers and unbelievers. I know it causes it in unbelievers clearly, but it also causes it in us, causes it in us all, often, which is this. Um, that seems too easy. It just seems too easy. I, I don't contribute anything. Nope. Nothing? Nope. Nothing. I can't boast about anything. Nope. In other words, our pride, our pride is oftentimes evoked by this teaching, isn't it? Our pride wells up and it drives us to believe that we must earn our own salvation. Drives us to believe that. We want to believe that when we stand before God, we have some merit that we can appeal to. I mean, honestly, down deep, don't you? Don't you want to believe that you got something that, I mean, I'm not talking about want to like, you, it's, it's almost like you have these competing desires, right? You have a desire that you just want to rejoice in the freeness of the grace of God. And then this other desire in you that wells up that I, I want to contribute something. I mean, I want to have some credit here. And we live that out all the time because we don't really believe that good things come for free. This is true for the Jews also, wasn't it? And it really leads to the first implication. Here it is. Sola fide is humbling. It's humbling. That's the first implication I want you to get. Sola fide or faith alone is humbling. The gospel taught by Paul in Romans 3, 21 through 26 teaches us that God does everything, everything, and thus deserves all the praise. And because of this, our boasting is removed. Our boasting is removed. Look, look at 327 there. He's just, he's just announced that God has done everything in Romans 3, 21 through 26. He's paid it all. And you just receive it through faith. And then he goes on in verse 27. He says this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. By the way, the law here is another way to translate that word is principle. What's the principle? Is it a principle of works that excludes our boast? No, it's a principle of faith that does. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. Boasting. What's, what is boasting? It's an outward manifestation of pride, right? Boasting is an outward manifestation of pride. Pride is, the, is really the root of boasting. And frankly, pride is the root of all the other evil in our lives. All of it. It's rude as pride. You know what is glorious about the gospel of the free grace of God in Christ that's received through faith alone is that it kills the root problem in us, which is our 
pride, our tendency to exalt ourselves in some way. You want to kill pride? I'll give you the most effective thing that you can do to kill pride. Meditate on the gospel over and over again. It will kill your pride. You try to do it any other way. You know what will happen? You'll become more prideful. Because you'll look at all the things I'm doing to kill my pride. I'm becoming pretty humble. Right? Pride is the great problem of all mankind. And Paul understood this all too well himself. I mean, don't think that Paul talks about the killing of boasting and pride in a vacuum as if it's a theological truth that has nothing to do with his own life. He understood it himself. He talks about pride continuously. Continuously. He talks about it constantly. Because he struggled with it. I mean, if, if you don't believe that he struggled with it prior to coming to faith in Christ, you're not paying attention to what he says in, in Philippians 3. He struggles with it after too. But if you don't believe he struggled with it prior to coming to faith in Christ, you're not paying attention to what he says in Philippians 3. He he talks about how much he boasted. In fact, he boasted so much in his own ability that that it just rolls right off his tongue. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. That's a pretty strong statement, right? If If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Philippians 3, 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Think of that. You think the guy struggled with pride? And he realizes at some point that all he wants is Christ, right? And when he realizes all he wants is Christ, what does he say about all that junk he did? It's all just manure. It's the word he uses. We say refuse, whatever, manure. But he did not only struggle with pride as an unbeliever. Even after he came to faith in Christ, he struggled with it. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how, and we're going to turn there. He talks about how he's suffering for the gospel. He's being persecuted that somehow God has allowed him to have a thorn in his flesh. We're not exactly certain what that is, but he has a thorn in his flesh that, that a messenger of Satan has given to him. And he prayed three times for God to take it away. Lord, take this away from me, this suffering, take it away from me. You know what the Lord says? No. I'm not going to. You know what Paul's conclusion as to why he didn't was? He says it twice. God didn't remove it to me because he wanted to keep me from becoming exceedingly prideful. In other words, Paul had a tendency because of the great gifting of God in his life to become exceedingly prideful. And so God brought suffering to his life so he wouldn't. He struggled with that. He knew pride and he knew it was the root of man's problem. In fact, we see it come out in Romans 1, 18 to 320. Look at Romans 1, 18. We'll see this and I'll just take you through really quickly. But look at how pride is really the root problem of all sin. Look at 118 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress 
the truth. How do I say pride is in there? What does it mean to suppress the truth? It means you know what the truth is, but you push it down. In other words, you exalt yourself above the truth. It's pride. We exalt ourselves above the truth and we push the truth down. It's pride. John Piper said this about it. The truth is available to all people in one way or the other. And instead of humbling ourselves under it, we stand over it and push it down. This is pride. It may take hundreds of different forms from the most petite and delicate to the most powerful and crude. But the reality is the same. We will stand over the truth and accept what we like and suppress what we don't. Take on this kind of pride all the time, don't we? We know the truth about God. But we don't want to bow down before it. We want to suppress it. We want to stand over it as its judge. We go further than this, though. We become fairly bold in our pride. Look what he says in Romans one twenty one through 23. For although they knew God, they knew God. They did not honor him as God. They did not exalt him. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, we knew the truth, but we said what? We're wiser than God. And we're going to worship something else. We become so filled up with pride that we reject God and demonstrate that we are ultimately fools. We think we know better. We become so engrossed in our own self-assurance that we think we know best. In fact, so much so that we don't even see fit to acknowledge God. Look at 128. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We fit to acknowledge him. We go beyond that. We continue past this to knowing that these things, this kind of sin deserves death. We know it. Yet being prideful enough about our own view of things that we commend the sin to others. Look what it says in 132. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, I've actually seen this in action. I've seen it take place. I mean, during marital counseling, um, I've seen couples in the midst of a march toward divorce. And one or both of the spouses decide they don't care what God thinks about divorce. I don't care. They think they know what's best for them. They'll be happier if they divorce, they think. And they determine that um, they don't care what the Bible says about it. Because ultimately, they know they'll be happier. The wisdom of the Bible can't be right. My own wisdom must be correct. So they go further than that even. They eventually will... Um, Invent a God who will approve of their behavior. You know how they do it? They take out the text of the Bible they like. 
and they dismiss the ones they don't. Just dismiss it. He's no longer the God is revealed in all the scriptures. He's just the God revealed in the scriptures I like. Um, they go further than that. They gather, gather to themselves friends and counsel one another to violate God's word. And they sit in judgment on it. And this happens in all sorts of areas of our lives, doesn't it? We do it with so many issues. We always seem to think that we know better than God. It's a continual problem. I'll give you an example. The Bible, the Bible clearly teaches that wisdom is you discipline your children spanking. But we have somehow becoming exceedingly wiser than God in our current day of contemporary psychology and said, no, you know, it's not what we need to do. Bible teaches wives are to submit their husbands and men are to lead in the church. But many, even in the church, have decided they know better. The Bible teaches that children are a blessing from the Lord and that moms are to be workers at home with their children. But you know what? We know what's better, what's best for us than the Bible does. But of course, I want to be careful here. We are more sophisticated than just saying we think the Bible's wrong. It's not what we do. Our sin is far more sophisticated than that. Our pride shows itself far better than that. Here's what we do. Every time we don't like a passage of scripture, we say it's unclear. Well, that's really difficult to interpret. Really? I do not permit a woman to teach her being authority over a man. Unclear? 1 Timothy 2.12. It's talking about the church. Is that a hard one to interpret? Titus chapter two, wives teach or older women teach the young women that they are to be lovers of their husbands, lovers of their children, respectable, self-controlled, pure workers at home. Difficult to interpret. Ephesians chapter five, wives submit to your husbands. Tough one to get a hold of. Right? Proverbs, he who fails to discipline his child with a rod hates his son. Hard to get a hold of? Or is it just that we don't like it? You guys, I do this. I find things in the Bible I don't like. And I think I can talk myself out of them. There are unclear passages in the Bible. They're generally not the ones we call unclear, though. The unclear passages in the Bible generally have to do with very difficult doctrinal issues that are very hard to get a hold of. I mean, they just are. But some of the passages in the Bible are immensely clear. We just don't like what they say. My point in all this isn't to exhaustively list all the areas where pride comes through. It's just to say this. We can't point at the atheists and say, you're prideful. 
You avoid the truth that's been given to you. You suppress it and we don't. Because we do too. We're all prideful. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Every single one of us. Is there anybody out there you think you're better at something than they are? In some way, you think you keep the law better than they do? I know it happens, right? You are like the Pharisee who goes in with a tax collector and you say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. Right? We do it, don't we? I remember when Teresa and I used to really feel better about our relationship because especially when we were dating because we knew other people who had really screwed up relationships and we thought, hey, you know, our relationship is so much better than theirs. We used to actually just talk about how their relationship was really screwed up. And I think in some way it made me feel like our relationship was much better. Anybody do that? The gospel removes that kind of boasting. It kills pride and brings humility. Why? Because in the gospel, we do nothing. We contribute in no way to our own salvation. Not in any way. We simply receive the grace of God as a free gift. We don't receive the gift because we believe as if faith is a work that is the cause or ground of Grace, we receive the gift through faith in the sense that we do nothing. It's just receiving. We trust God did everything. Here's, here's how Piper talks about it. He says this, God has acted in history through the death of Christ to save us from the condemning effects of pride. And he has done it in such a way as not even to involve us in the accomplishment of it. He sent Christ He upheld his glory through Christ. He propitiated his wrath by Christ. He paid the ransom, which was Christ. And he vindicated his righteousness in Christ. And we cannot boast that we had any part in accomplishing it because we did not have any part in accomplishing it. It's Paul's point in Romans 3, 27 through 28. Removes all boasting. Based on what? On the principle of faith. Because justification comes by faith apart from works of the law. They did nothing but received the free gift of God's grace. It's all we do. We receive it. It's, it's really a humbling truth. We can't do anything to please God. Only faith pleases him. Why? Why does only faith please God? Hebrews chapter 11 says that, right? Why? Because faith looks to God and not to ourselves. That's why. Not because it's a great work you've generated that now pleases God, but because it looks outside of you. Faith acknowledges need for God. Further, Paul recognizes that if a man was justified by works of the law, the Jews would have an advantage. So he says, look, look at what he says there in um, Romans chapter three, verse 28 or 29. He asked this strange question, or is God the God of Jews only? 
Coming off of verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, Paul recognizes that if a man was to be justified by works of the law, the Jews would have an advantage, wouldn't they? Because they have the covenants, the promises, the circumcision. But as it is, they do not. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He so loves the what? The world. Not the Jews. Not the Americans. The world. Jesus is, 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but for the whole world. If this were not so, then God would be the God of the Jews only. But he is the God of the Gentiles also, and he will justify both through faith. He must justify both the same way because he is one God. And he only works one way. Which leads us to the second implication of of faith alone. And here it is. Sola fide or faith alone points to the necessity and glory of missions. And flash evangelism. Points to the necessity and glory of missions and evangelism. I want to reverse Paul's logic. Okay. He gets in Romans um, 3, 29 through 30. I want to reverse his logic. Here's what he says. If there's only one God, which there is, God is one, then he must be the God of not only the Jews, but of all nations. That's what he says, right? The Gentiles, the ethne. He must be the God of all nations. And if he is the God of all nations, will he not justify all men in the same manner? And the simple answer is yes. If, now listen, If we hold that all men in all nations are in the same condition of pride and sinfulness. And we have simply to scan Paul's letter, the beginning of Paul's letter to Rome, to find that all men are in the same condition. If you just look up at Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law becomes knowledge of sin. And then you go down to Romans 3.23. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a free gift. Everyone is in this condition. Everyone. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That condition is the same for all men. There is one God who was, who has a holy law that all men universally have violated and for which all men universally are guilty. 
No man will be justified by good works. And those who are justified, all those who are justified will be justified by what? Grace as a free gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. All of them. All of them. In other words, God saves the Jews and the Gentiles the same way. Everyone on earth, without exception, everyone is condemned in their sin. They have all, without exception, suppressed the truth of God. We have all, without exception, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all, without exception, cannot be declared righteous by our good works. We all, without exception, can only be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This utterly ruins, utterly ruins any argument for salvation in other religions, doesn't it? It utterly destroys the notion of the noble savage who's saved by obeying the light he has. No one obeys the light they have. They all, we all suppress it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4 says that there is no other name under heaven by which men must, not may, must be saved. So I want to point something out here. There's both an exclusivity and an inclusivity about the gospel. An exclusivity and an inclusivity about the gospel. Or you might say a narrowness and a broadness. You know what they are? It is narrow or exclusive in that no one can be justified by works. They can only be justified by grace as a free gift to be received through faith alone in Christ alone. That's how it's exclusive. Now, here's how it's inclusive. It's inclusive in that it's open to all men everywhere. In other words, God makes an offer of free grace to all men everywhere in all nations. I say this truth points to the necessity of missions because no man can be saved apart from faith in Christ. He cannot be saved in Islam. He cannot be saved in Judaism, cannot be saved in Hinduism or animism or Buddhism. He can't be saved through his ignorance. Man can only be saved in Christ. So sola fide points to the glory of missions in that we have the privilege of preaching a gospel that's available to every man. So not only does it point to the necessity of it, but it points to the glory of it because we have the privilege of preaching the gospel to everyone. Romans 10, 13 and following says this, if you want to look there really quickly, it says this. For everyone, everyone, listen, especially those of you who are dyed in the wool, hardcore Calvinists, listen, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone without exception who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet it's necessary. Why are missions necessary? Because look, or evangelism. Look at verse 14. How, but how are they to call on him 
in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And it's glorious because verse 15, look. How are they to hear without and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Huh? What a privilege. I want to say this to sovereign grace to our church. Look, sola fide is not a doctrine that should cause us to boast. It should humble us. It's not a doctrine that we should be content with only knowing and being able to articulate or articulate accurately. It should move us to see the necessity and glory of world missions and evangelism. We must be a church that tells our unbelieving friends of the glorious free gift of grace available to them in the gospel. We must implore, beg, and even command them to believe in Jesus Christ. Someone might object that all this talk about faith alone apart from works of the law, though, seems to undermine the law. Chad, that is so, I've heard this to people I've talked about, that is so easy. It seems to undermine the law. I don't do anything. What's the point of the law then? In fact, some Christians will argue that God offered, and I talked about this earlier, offered the law as a way of salvation, but we couldn't keep it. And because we couldn't, he's now lowered the standard and said, all you need to do is believe in Jesus. In other words, the law has been tossed out in favor of an easier kind of rule that we can keep. Let me tell you two problems with that. First, it makes faith into a work, doesn't it? Faith is not just the easier work that God gave us. It isn't as if God said, since you can't really keep the law, why don't you just feel really bad about not being able to keep it and believe in Jesus? That'll be good enough. No, not only does this misunderstand the nature of faith, which is just simple trust in the work of Christ, the work that he's done and not a work that we need to do. It's also a misunderstanding of the implication of sola fide with regard to the law. With regard to the law. And that leads to our third implication. Here's the third implication. Sola fide, or faith alone, exalts or upholds the law. Look at verse um, 31 of Romans chapter 3. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. How can faith alone uphold the law? How does it hold uphold the law when I tell you that you don't need to keep the law to be saved? There's no condition. Just receive the grace of God in Jesus and you are saved. You are declared righteous. You come before God and are seen as holy as the second member of the Trinity. Think of that. How does that uphold the law? Seems to denigrate it, doesn't it? 
Because if you could be saved by keeping part of the law, which is what faith is an easier work would be, being saved by keeping part of the law, and if the penalty of the law could be overlooked, then the law, then, then and only then really would the law be diminished, right? However, Jesus kept the precepts or commands of the law with his perfect life. Jesus said he came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said that. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus obeyed the Father's will perfectly always. Always. Think of it. The lawgiver became submissive to his own law. He kept it perfectly. If you were declared righteous by your own partial law-keeping rather than through being united to Christ in his perfect law keeping, God would have lowered the standard of the law and that wouldn't honor the law. Second, Jesus not only kept the commands or the precepts of the law, he kept the penalty of the law. He took the penalty for the violation of the law upon himself. So in his life, in his perfect righteous life, in which he obeyed all the commands of the law, Jesus exalted the law. And in his death, in which he took on himself the penalty of the law due us, he exalted the law. So if we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then and only then is the law rightly upheld or exalted. Because it's upheld or exalted in Christ. The holy law-giving God of all things. Becoming subject to the precept and penalty of the law is the greatest honor that could ever be paid to the law. Not our lame attempts at keeping it. So many Christians think the gospel diminishes the law. And you know, as a result, they don't have much respect for it. But if we understand that it is a reflection of the perfect character of God, that it has been exalted by Christ, then we'll love it. We'll want to keep it. Not because we think that through it, God will accept us. But because we want to please the God who loved us, even when we were violating it. We keep the law because it's holy, righteous, perfect, and good, isn't it? We keep it because it's best for us. It gives glory to God who kept it for us. If we understand the implications of sola fide, we'll be humbled and we'll be moved to proclaim the gospel to those who do not know and we'll rejoice in God's law as a lamp unto our feet. And alight into our path. I'm not saying that these three implications are things that you ought to do. Faith tells you do these things. Right? I'm not saying that. I'm saying faith alone. If you believe it. This doctrine will generate this fruit. These are three. In a sense fruits that come from. Rightly understanding 
the gospel and believing the gospel. Here are the fruits. You're humbled. You see the necessity and glory of missions and evangelism. And you uphold or love the law. It's fruit. It's something God does in you. I'm not giving you three new commands today. I'm telling you, these are the things that God will work in you. So you know what the take home is? Believe. That's it. Believe. You believe, you know what you'll do? You'll obey. Just because you believe. Because you know the God in whom you trust. Oh, that's what we should pray for. Is that we really see. You guys, I, I, this is where, I, for me, it's, I, I was, I, I'm almost overwhelmed by the fact that God gives us the privilege to see him in Christ. You just see him in his glory and his incredible holiness and this unbelievable love that he shows to people that are wicked like me. And this grace that he gives with no conditions. He just says, just believe me. Believe me. And you'll be saved. I don't know about you, but that causes me to want to repent. And to want to rejoice. And to want to obey. Not because I think somehow that's going to get me that grace but because he's already given it to me. Let me pray. Lord, I, I thank you um, for your son. I thank you that you have given him for us. Lord, that you offered your free grace Lord, just as um, freely to um, one sinner as another, Lord, that you offer it freely to sinners in Africa and Asia and America and Israel, that you are not a respecter of persons, but that you love the whole world and offer it to us all. Lord, I thank you that um, you not only offer it to all races of people, but Lord, you offer it to all kinds of sinners. Whether we're religious, moral people who grew up in Christian homes and lived a straight-laced life, Lord, or we're prostitutes. It doesn't matter. Your grace is just as free if they'd but receive it. Lord, we thank you for that and pray Lord, that we would see and apprehend and love the gift, the free gift of Christ in the gospel. That we would not try to add something to faith in order to be justified, but Lord, just that we would receive the declaration of our righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. The amount of guilt we're able to feel, 
the amount of faith that we're able to generate is not what we hope in. The amount of obedience that we're able to provide is not what we hope in. Lord, that we hope in Christ. And because our hope is objectively in him and not subjectively in something in us, our hope is sure. It cannot disappoint. In Jesus' name, amen.